Well, good morning once again, church. Good morning. It's good to be back here. If you know, uh, my family and I were out of town last week on vacation, and it was good for us to be away, but it really is good to be back with you all. It's a joy to worship and song with you all, and especially though, it's a joy now to gather around God's Word together. And as always, we do want to say if you are new or newer here at ECC again, we are so glad that you're with us. So this morning, we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in Philippians. We're going verse by verse through the letter to the Philippians. And this week, we're going to finish Philippians 1 and covering that final paragraph there in verses 27 through 30. And right away, though, if you look down at your Bibles, you can see the topic of our paragraph from that topic sentence that comes in the first verse of our paragraph there in verse 27. So if you remember, Paul's been talking about himself and his own situation and if he's going to live or die, but now he starts addressing the church as a whole, and he says this, verse 27 to start, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll stop there, but I want you to see that is the topic of our paragraph. He's addressing the church now. And through God's word, we know he's addressing us as a church, and the topic is living worthy of the gospel of Christ. And specifically, notice the footnote on that word worthy there, if you're following along in the ESV, because this is important, because a more accurate translation, really, of that would be to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens, because that's actually the word Paul uses here. It's not just some generic word for live. Instead, it's a word that specifically means to be a citizen of a place. In fact, it's just the word citizen made into a verb. And so the idea right away from our paragraph is, if you're a Christian, your citizenship now is somebody who's defined by the gospel. And now live like it. And so that's really the topic of our paragraph, living as citizens worthy of the gospel. And yet, before we do move on to the paragraph and see what Paul's talking about specifically, let's just realize how relevant that was for them 2,000 years ago, but also how relevant this is for us today. We're citizens as Christians, not primarily of where we live, but of the gospel in heaven, as he says in chapter 3. And this is relevant for the Philippians, because if you remember, all the way back when we started Philippians, we did a little intro to this letter, and we talked about how Philippi was a Roman colony. And being a Roman colony, they all were Roman citizens, which was a big deal for them. And because of that, twice in this short letter, Paul makes it clear to them that they very well may be citizens of Rome. And that's true. But their ultimate priority of citizenship now as Christians lied in the gospel. It's in heaven and Christ. And now importantly, Paul never tells them to renounce their Roman citizenship or to say that it wasn't anything anymore, but he wants them to get their perspective right. They are now citizens as Christians of something ultimately much larger and different than the nation in which they lived. Their allegiance now as followers of Jesus was not to the Roman military or government and its politics and its Caesar. Instead, their ultimate allegiance was to this powerful saving message, the gospel, and its way of living, and its King Jesus. And the same, brothers and sisters, is true of us. And I think we need to feel this right away. Our calling is to walk as citizens worthy of the gospel. 
And we'll address what that means in a little bit. But in order for us to rightly understand everything we're going to be talking about in this message, that primary citizenship needs to be in our hearts. Because let's be honest, we can get so caught up in the world and what's going on in our country and what's going on in our state. But ultimately, who are we? Yes, we, we live in Fairfield County and Stamford, Connecticut, in the United States, in the 21st century, and all of those things, of course, matter. But in and above all of that is that we're citizens of the gospel, of this message that we believe and love about Jesus. We belong to Christ. And as a side note, if, if you are sitting out there and you're struggling, if you're honest, believing this, that you're primary citizenship isn't in America or anything like that, I just encourage you to to really imagine what the Philippian congregation, the Philippian congregation to whom this letter was written to 2,000 years ago, how they now are feeling. Because each one of our brothers and sisters who lived in Philippi 2,000 years ago, as we know, they have now died. And the Bible is very clear, we just read it a couple weeks ago, that they're with Christ And think of this, now they know without a doubt that the Roman citizenship that they had from around 30 AD to let's say 100 AD was really temporary. The same is true of us in our American citizenship, it's temporary. And so our goal right away, as we begin this passage, is to feel that as well. We are citizens of the gospel. That's what defines us, that's what unites us. But that then does bring us back to consider the paragraph as a whole and what Paul's going to say when he's talking about living as worthy, citizens worthy of the gospel. And he's going to be talking about a handful of things in these four verses, but in order for us to see what's in here more clearly, we're going to go through this paragraph asking two major questions. Two major questions this is going to be an outline of our time here this morning. So the topic is living as citizens worthy of the gospel, but then first we're going to ask, Well, what has God called us to as citizens of the gospel? That'll be verses 27 and 28. And the second, after that, we're then going to ask, and what does God give us to fulfill that calling? So very basically, citizens of the gospel, well, as citizens, what are we now called to? That's our first question, 27 and 28. And then 29 and 30, and what does God give us to fulfill that calling? That's our outline for the morning. But with that said, let's now dig in. Let's dig in. We're starting verses 27 and 28. And again, here we are asking, what are we called to as citizens of the gospel? Let's read those verses now. As always, I encourage you to look down at your Bibles. This is Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, Or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So to begin, notice that as citizens of the gospel overall, what we're called to is we're called to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's an interesting phrase, because at first glance, it it almost appears, right, to be contradictory to everything we believe about the gospel. Because as we know, we in the gospel are 
unworthy. That's the whole point of the good news of Jesus. We're unworthy. We're sinners. We, we disregard God in our minds. and We want nothing to do with him on our own. But by grace, he gives us faith. He saves us. He brings us back to him. But overall, we know we are unworthy. And so the question is, what, what does this mean to live worthy of the gospel? Well, notice, it's not that we're called to live now in a way that earns or merits any sort of relationship with God ever, right? That's not what it says. It doesn't say live worthy of now continually being in a right relationship with God. Not at all. Instead, we're called to be worthy of the gospel. And specifically, remember, it's saying that we're to be citizens, walk as citizens worthy of the gospel. And so think with me what this means. And, and to use an illustration, think of how these Philippians would have heard this live as citizens worthy of phrase, as Roman citizens back then. Because if someone were to say to them, live as somebody worthy of being a Roman citizen, they would have understood its implications. Right? They would have understood that there's privileges about being a Roman citizen and they could enjoy those privileges and they would have understood that there were certain responsibilities of being a Roman citizen. Both of those would, would have been implied. But what wouldn't have been implied is that now they need to live in such a way where they earned that Roman citizenship because they were already citizens. And the same goes for us. To be worthy of the gospel is not to think that you are worthy to be saved. Not at all. Instead, it's to be worthy of the gospel. Meaning we know, we love, we trust the gospel. The gospel that says we are honestly really messed up, but God is gracious to us and brings us back to himself. We believe that. That gospel defines us, and now our call is to live in a way that corresponds to that that shows that that gospel has real, ultimate worth in our lives. But that then leads to Paul really digging into two aspects of what living worthy of the gospel looks like in the rest of those verses 27 and 28. And first, in verse 27, he says that living worthy leads to a special unity in the gospel. Unity in the gospel. And see this for yourself in verse 27. It's emphasized over and over. Paul says to live worthy of the gospel so that, so purpose, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So you can see it over and over, that call for unity, standing firm in one spirit, unity of one mind and how we think, striving side by side. That's unity. But also notice it's not just some vague unity. Instead, it's a firm unity here with, with one mind thinking together and for a purpose, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so the picture clearly is here of those who are saved by the gospel really being together in the gospel. And in this way, it's similar, if you remember, weeks ago to our idea of being partners in the gospel that we saw in Philippians 1.5. Because the Bible's saying here that there's to be a real unity. A real, we're in this together sort of thought among us. Because we all believe the same gospel and that's our goal and this means, just to be clear, that we do choose then to overlook secondary things that might bring about disunity. 
And why? Because we realize that we're really in this together for Christ, for our faith, for love, for the glory of God, for the gospel. And to bring this home before we do move on, many, many commentators do think, it's really interesting, that there actually could even be a subtle implied illustration from Paul in that verse there. And it's in that idea of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this could be an illustration because Philippi was a military town, and many commentators think that this word here for striving side by side, it's just one word in the original language, would have had the original readers in a military town think of a military phalanx. Military phalanx. And perhaps you remember from all way back then when you were in grade school learning about the Greeks and the Romans what a phalanx was, a phalanx. It was a famous military formation used by the Greeks and then picked up by the Romans in which all the soldiers would stand side by side in a rectangle or square formation. And they'd stand so close that they were a tight-knit unit. And they'd be able to walk side by side, step by step, with their shields in front of them for defense. And then if you remember, they had these long javelins and spears that came out in front of them for attack. And in short, it was a brilliant historical military formation. Because it was extremely difficult to penetrate. And why? Because they were side by side tight-knit, unified in each step, together in purpose, and they all understood that both their defense and their attack depended on them sticking together. And that is a great illustration of us in the gospel. Because God did not intend for us to become Christians and then do it alone. We can't. He intended for us to get together unified in spirit and how we feel, unified in our mind. That doesn't mean we're all exactly the same, far from it, but we're unified in the gospel, in this message, in grace, in loving and trusting Jesus. And so we get side by side together in our lives. We understand that we're in this together, that we're saved by Christ, that we're trying to live for the glory of Christ, that we're trying to love and reach the world for Christ, and we're doing it all side by side together. So that's what living worthy of the gospel looks like in verse 27. It's that unity together. Then in verse 28, we see another thing, and you can see it if you look down, that living worthy of the gospel is to not be frightened by our opponents because it's a clear sign to them of their destruction and our salvation. And at first, right, that might sound a bit strange, but think with me what Paul is saying here. He's saying that there's a certain not frightened sort of way that we can live and act, quote-unquote worthy of the gospel, so that those who are opposed to us see something true through how we live. And what do they see as true? They see essentially two important aspects of the gospel there. First, they start to see that because the gospel is real, and it's evidenced by how these people are living, that unless they trust in Christ, they will be judged, and the Bible does say, quote, quote, unquote, destroyed. Now, that sounds intense, and to be honest, it is intense, but as you might know, that's a very Old Testament word and a way to describe the final judgment. Because when God comes back, because he loves this world, the Bible's very clear, he's going to punish and finally eradicate all sin and evil from this world, and so unless somebody trusted in Christ and they're forgiven of their sins through Christ, they will be part of that 
eradication, that destruction, that judgment. But then the flip side of that is that our not being frightened is a sign that we'll be saved. That we won't be part of being destroyed like we deserve because of the gospel. And again, let's be very clear. Why we'll be saved? Not because we're any better. But again, because of the gospel. Because we're forgiven. We're loved. We're reconciled. We're made new. All because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we don't need to be frightened. And not only that, again, verse 28 says that this is a sign. Well, this word can even be translated as evidence. And so the point is our trusting in God or not being frightened by everything that could be frightening to us is evidence to ourselves and honestly to the very world that we live in. It's all evidence of the reality of this gospel, of this message. And so now with verses 27 and 28 covered, now we see our answer to our first question. What are we called to as citizens of the gospel? Well, we've seen that we're called to be worthy of the gospel. And this does not mean that you're awesome now and you're worthy to be saved and earn your standing with God. Not at all. That wouldn't be worthy of the gospel. Instead, it means that we love the gospel. We're unified in it. We're striving side by side together for the gospel like in a phalanx. And ultimately, it means that we're not frightened by things that could be frightening all because we trust our God. Because we know the future. Because we know that through Jesus, because of what he did, we will be delivered. But now, before we move on to our second question, and our second point this morning, we do need to point out that final phrase that Paul decided to add there in verse 28. And I love this, because this is, this is so typical of Paul and so typical of the Bible. Because think of it this way. So we've understood these verses. We've understood these verses. We've seen how this is a call to us. This is how we're to act, how we're to now live as those who are saved by Christ. But then see it for yourself. Notice the last phrase of verse 28, Paul adds, and that from God. Now in English, it looks like the word that is referring to the salvation just mentioned. You were saved and that's from God. But interestingly, in the original language, that cannot be referring to salvation. It can't be. Instead, that word that there has to refer to more than that and most likely refers to everything just said in verses 27 and 28. In other words, all of verses 27 and 28 that we've just covered, living worthy of the gospel, being unified in the gospel, not being frightened and trusting in the Lord because of the gospel, all of that doesn't come from us. It's from God. And this is a huge point before we move on. And this is why I said this. I love this. And it's so typical Bible and Pauline. Because whenever we start talking about our calling. And how we're to obey. We can so quickly start to think. That now this part really is about us. That it's up to us. That God saves us. Yeah, but now it's up to me. That I have to muster up the willpower to walk worthy of the gospel. That I have to make sure that I figure out how to be united. That I have to figure out not, how not to be frightened. In a sense, of course, yes, we participate in those things. But let's not be mistaken. All of that, the Bible says, is ultimately from God. Not us. And so take heart. 
If you're out there right now and you think, I, I can't be like this. I struggle with living worthy of the gospel. I struggle with unity or I do get really frightened. It's okay to admit all that. That's the beauty of the gospel. And the point is here, take heart. It is not ultimately up to you. So don't leave here and think now you have to muster up all this willpower on your own. Or don't leave here thinking that now's the time for you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and change for God. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity at the beginning when you're saved. And that's not Christianity as we try to live for Christ. Instead, it's about relying on Jesus, clinging to the gospel in humility and in trust. Because it's true, God has called us to live worthy of the gospel. But how? By clinging to the gospel the gospel of grace, and by realizing that any progress that we do make is from God. Which then leads us now finally to our second question this morning. That's how Paul finishes his paragraph. So first we ask, what are we called to as citizens of the gospel? But now as we finish the paragraph, we're going to ask, and what does God give us to fulfill that calling? In other words, we're going to see Paul now here tell us what God gives us to to do what we're called to do. And to be honest, what we're going to see here is probably not what we'd expect. But it's what God's word says to us. So let's read it now, verses 29 and 30. Look down at your Bibles. The Bible says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still had. So the first thing to notice about all that is that word granted there. You see it, it's been granted to you. So here God is granting us things. But important to note is that word granted is the same exact word as the word forgiven. It's the same word for the word gifted. And it actually is the same word for grace turned into a verb. It's all the same word in the original language. And it's important because, in other words, that word means to grant something to somebody. Also can mean to give it to them. It also means to gift it to them. And it even is the same word meaning to grace it to them. And it's significant. Because as we know, God's grace in the Bible is a big idea. It's him treating us better than we deserve. It's him giving, gifting us salvation, his love, his presence, And so grace in the Bible is a really important topic all the way from beginning to end. And so the question is, what does God grant us, gift us, give us, grace us with here? Two things, and you can see them easily for yourself in verse 29. First, the Bible says that it's been granted, given, graced to us to believe in him. To believe in him. That's exactly what it says. The first half of verse 29 And this in itself connects to what we've been saying. How can we live as citizens worthy of the gospel? Well, God has given us, gifted us with faith. And this is one of the places in the Bible where it is really clear that even our faith, brothers and sisters, is a grace. It's a gift. That's exactly what our Bible say in verse 29. We've been graced, given, gifted with faith to believe in him. And to be clear, this refers initially at our salvation. But faith in the Bible also is talking about what it's like to live the Christian life. It means that our faith as we continue to trust God is a gift as well. 
And so in other words, we don't ultimately muster up our faith. We didn't trust in Jesus because we're awesome or we're better than somebody else. Instead, our trust in Jesus is clearly here a gift given to us by Jesus. As a side note, this is why, brothers and sisters, we as Christians really should be such humble people. (laughs) Because, Because think about what was said at the end of verse 28 how all of that is from God, and then think about what Paul's saying here, that even our faith is a gift, because all in all, the point is so clear, our being saved by Jesus, our worthiness of the gospel, our living in unity, our not being frightened, and now here, our faith, all of it isn't of us. All of it is a gift. And so we can't look at anyone in the world and feel pride. And that's why it's such a tragedy and so detrimental to the true gospel when somebody who's claiming to be a Christian is full of pride, thinking that you're better than others, looking down on others, not repenting when you mess up, thinking that the world revolves around you because all that's opposite of the gospel. The gospel that teaches us that we're initially saved by grace and not because of us and that even our faith is a grace. All really is grace. So how can we be full of ourselves? But that brings us back here to verse 29. So that's the first thing in answer to our question. What has God given us to fulfill our calling? It's God has given us grace with faith. But now that leads to the second and emphatic thing that God gives us in our paragraph. And see this for yourself because this is so important. So to live worthy of the gospel and to do so, God gifts us with faith. We get that, but now see the second thing he gives. We're going to read the verses again, just so we see it. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you, grace to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So again, that word granted is the same word for grace made into a verb. So what has God graced us? with here at the end of verse 29, with suffering. Suffering. And now let's be honest. This almost seems paradoxical. right? God graces us, gifts us with suffering. And let's also be careful here, really careful. We cannot, we cannot be simply dogmatic, are cold about this or shallow about this. We're talking about suffering. I mean, real, painful, confusing. Why is this happening to me? Why is that happening to the other person I'm watching suffer? We're talking about suffering. And so we do need to make clear that we really get what the Bible is saying here because it is clear, though. Grammatically and in a plain reading of the text, you can see it. We, as God's people, are granted, given, Gifted, in a sense, graced with suffering. For his sake, as the Bible says twice, and then also for our sake, as we're trying to live worthy of the gospel. And so now our big question is, what does that mean? Why would the Bible say that? And to answer this question, let's focus on two aspects of this. First, let's take some time to think about just what this means from just verse 29. And then second, let's think about suffering in the whole context of the paragraph, verses 27 through 30. So first, considering just what it says in verse 29, 
I think the best way for us to see what's really going on here is to think about what it really means that the Bible says that God grants us suffering, that he gives it to us. Because what's at heart here is the idea of who is ultimately in control of our suffering. Now to be clear, on the one hand, we need to keep the whole biblical framework, the story of history and the whole biblical framework in front of us here. All right, God created the world perfect and without suffering and sorrow and it was human beings at a specific point in history who made a choice to rebel against God and sin brought suffering and sorrow and sadness and pain and death into the world. That's true. And so in this sense, suffering wasn't part of God's original design. We need to remember that in our suffering. And it's this that led Jesus, our God, when he was here 2,000 years ago to weep when his friend Lazarus was suffering and died, because suffering is awful. It is weep-worthy. It's not right. We weren't supposed to suffer and die like this, and that's why all of us feel that it's so off. And so Jesus comes to deal with that, and the Bible's very clear. He will come back one day and make it all right again. And all that is true, biblical, and beautiful. But then on the other hand, In another sense, we also need to keep in mind what the Bible says here and elsewhere too. That our God is never surprised by what happens in this world. That he's in complete control of it. And that any suffering that does come to us, his people, ultimately comes from him. He grants it. He gives it. Now, This does not mean that this is a flippant or easy thing, but it does mean that all of our suffering that we experience as God's people ultimately is granted and comes from his good, wise, fatherly hands. Think of it this way. When we think about what's going on when we suffer, we really have three options. Three options. First, we can think it's just random. This is what kind of the world offers as an answer. We can think it's just is what it is. You've got to deal with it. Or we hear sayings like the world is a cruel place, and it is, and life is hard, and it is, and so just deal with it. That's option one. Or option two would be to have this dualistic idea of God and Satan. And often, unfortunately, a lot of Christians think like this. This isn't biblical, but it's a dualistic idea where Satan and evil forces have certain control in some areas, But God doesn't have control in those areas. And that that's where suffering comes from. And this would put Satan and evil forces at front and center of our suffering and not God. And while in one sense, this would easily absolve God of any responsibility. And it would put Satan and evil forces in control of our suffering. But it would also mean that God has no control there and he has no purpose in our suffering. But then there's a third option which is the biblical option. It might be hard to believe, but it's very clear in the Bible. It's reality. It's what we see here in this verse. And importantly, this is also what all of us as human beings were made deep in our bones to really want to know and believe. And that's that although suffering is awful, and although our God weeps at it, and it wasn't supposed to be this way, it still is sovereignly controlled by our loving God. He's in control. 
He has good and wise and loving purposes in our suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't means and ways that we experience suffering. Of course there are, right? People hurt us. Viruses and diseases wreck our bodies. Natural disasters come to us. And the Bible is even clear that there are evil forces, right? Like from the story of Job, that do cause suffering. There's a lot of means, a lot of ways that we suffer. But here's the important point. In all of those ways and means, God is still ultimately in total control. There is no randomness. He grants suffering. And again, brothers and sisters, this is a good thing because this means our suffering is not out of his control. Think of it this way. His hands are not tied. Not at all. Instead, any suffering we experience or any suffering we watch somebody else experience ultimately comes from our own Jesus's nail-pierced hands. It doesn't make it light or easy, but it does mean that in whatever comes our way, we can trust him. So that's the thing we see about suffering in just verse 29. But now that brings us to the point, if we look at the paragraph as a whole. And for this, think about that word granted there being translated as it can as gifted or graced. That in a sense, God's allowing us to suffer is a grace. can be called a gift. That it really, in a certain sense, can be God's grace coming toward us. So what could this mean? Well, here is where the whole paragraph that we just covered can start to make sense. And for this, just look down at your Bibles at that important first word of verse 29. Just one word, three letters, that word for. It's a small and important word. And as you know, it just means because. But this because is crucially important. And to see why, notice that that word for at the beginning of verse 29 is the connection between verses 27 and verse Verses 27 and 28 and verses 29 and 30. In other words, 29 and 30 are the because of verses 27 and 28. And so our paragraph is essentially saying this. Verses 27 and 28. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Be unified. Trust in the Lord and don't be frightened by anything by your opponents. Verses 29 and 30. For because God's given you two things. First, God has given you faith. Which makes sense. Faith helps us walk worthy of the gospel. Faith helps us be unified. Faith helps us trust in our Lord, but then also second, be like this because our suffering does that as well. Do you see that? And so this means our faith helps us live worthy of the gospel. Our faith joins us together. Our faith helps us trust in the Lord when things look frightening, but our suffering does that as well. That's the point. And so in this way, as hard as it might seem to believe at first, we can really say that in a certain sense, suffering is a grace, a gift. And again, let's not be shallow or cold about this. Suffering is painful. It's awful. But the Bible is saying here that it's given by our good and loving God for a reason. And part of that reason, just from Philippians 1, 29 and 30, is because suffering does lead us as God's people to live more worthy of the gospel. Suffering does lead us to trust more in the gospel. Suffering leads us to be more united. 
As I'm sure all of us know, when we're suffering together or we're watching somebody suffering, God brings about a sweet unity through it. And finally, our suffering and our trusting God in that suffering is a huge sign and evidence to the world that this gospel that we believe is true. And some brothers and sisters, that is our paragraph. We're to lift citizens worthy of the gospel. We're to be united, not frightened, trusting in the Lord. And how does God bring this about? Through faith and through suffering. And both of those are granted, given grace to us by our good, loving, wise Father. But now as we close, I just want to make two quick applications. Two quick applications. First, anyone who's here, and if they're honest with themselves and they're listening, they realize they do not trust in Jesus. And then second, to those of us here who by God's grace to trust in our Lord. First, applying those here, uh, here to those who, if you're honest... You admit that you do not trust in Jesus. First, I just want to say to you, we are so glad you're here. And I am glad you're being honest with your beliefs and your thoughts. But the reason I want to apply this specifically to you this morning is because I do just want to conclude by inviting you really to come to Jesus this morning, even maybe really for the first time in your life. Because we've been talking about a lot this morning, the gospel and forgiveness and faith and God and our suffering. But I hope this morning that through those topics, you're getting a glimpse at how great what Jesus truly offers is. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus not only offers forgiveness, that's true, that's a big part of the gospel, but he offers everything we've been talking about this morning. Unity with God's people. A life where you don't have to be frightened by these uncertainties in the world and purpose and control and love in your suffering in a future better than anything the world can offer. So I encourage you, if you're here and you honestly don't trust in Christ, or you're just here because it's something your parents have done or your spouse has done, I just encourage you to trust in Jesus this morning. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to yourself if you think you're really, really bad and don't deserve the gospel. And don't look to yourself if you think you're awesome. It's not about you. Look to Jesus this morning. Look to what he did on the cross in history 2,000 years ago. Trust him and leave here changed. But that finally leads us now to apply the, this all to us here who by God's grace do trust in and love Jesus. And I know there's a lot here, a lot we could apply and some quick applications would be that let's not get frightened by things in the world that can seem frightening and especially let's be unified, brothers and sisters, in a world that's there's so many things that are trying to disunify us. Let's remain unified in the gospel. And those are great applications. But overall, I want us to simply leave with this. Brothers and sisters, let's really trust our God in our suffering. Let's really do it. Because the, the Bible's amazing in how it gives us what truly can give us peace in the midst of suffering. Because we've been saying on the one hand, the Bible is clear that suffering isn't what we're made for. It's an abnormality. Jesus weeps at it. But then also on the other hand, the Bible is clear that our suffering isn't random at all. Instead, our God is perfectly, lovingly, and totally in control of all of it. He works all things for our good. And as we said, it all comes from our Jesus' nail-pierced hands. Now again, it doesn't make it easy, but while we're here on this fallen earth, in these fallen bodies, we wouldn't want it any other way. God weeps with us in our suffering, and 
He's in control and uses it for our good. And one last thing. And even if our suffering leads us to death, which it will for each one of us unless the Lord returns first, it's there that we really remember what we covered in verses 21 through 23 a few weeks ago. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. And why? Because when we die, we simply leave. And we leave to go be with Jesus. And then one day, Jesus will come back. And we, his people, with him. And we will live here on this earth with one another and with our loving God and without suffering forever. Let's pray. Let's pray.